There's something nice about a bath. After a long, hard day at work, just soaking yourself in gallons and gallons of steaming hot water, throwing in a bath bomb, and then having your husband drown you, just relaxes you. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. And we are also joined this week by Jamie, friend of the show. She gave us a wonderful Old Timey Crimey that was published earlier this week you can listen to. Say hi, Jamie. Hey, everybody. So she does not know the story we're going to tell today, but she does know how to make sarcastic comments. She's very practiced at it, so you'll probably get a couple of those. Yay! (laughs) I think I should be offended, but I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) But first, rays of light. Guys, 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 guess what? What? I saw the comment! Yay! I saw the comment. We drove around for probably all told a total of two and a half hours over two nights trying to find a good location. And finally, we ended up up at the mall parking lot, and now everybody knows about that spot somehow. Jackson was like, how many people did you tell? Because we went up the one night, and there was nobody. And the next night, we went up, and it was like like five cars. So but... I wonder if you'd get a better uh, shot at it from Becky's grave. Where? Where? The, where? Snavely Cemetery. Still don't know where that is, but I can look it up on a map. Okay, so... I am shocked you've never been to Becky's Grave. Yeah, that's... One of the most haunted places in Johnstown. That is a little bit shocking, honestly. I've never heard of it. If you go, like, past the sheets, past the Galleria, like, up towards where the post office is behind the Galleria, go to the blinking light, make a right, go back there about two miles, and there's Snavely Cemetery. Snavely Cemetery. All mm-hmm. right. All right. It's on, I think it's called Oak Ridge Road. Oh, I know where Oak Ridge Road is. Yeah. Yeah. Or is it Mount Airy Drive? I can't remember. It's Mount Airy Drive. Mount Airy Drive. Mount Airy Drive. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to go looking for that. Thank you. Thank no you. No problem. All right. There is also a horse back there that is almost always outside. Yeah. He's adorable. <laughs> His name's Chestnut. Oh, Chestnut. Because I named I him to, Chestnut. I used <laughs> to take the kids there. That was the go to sleep drive. And we would always go on the late night drive to go see the horsey. And so (laughs) there's very little lights back there, very little stopping that you must do. And so that was that was the uh, go to sleep kids drive. And actually, it's Navy Cemetery. There's a nice little pull off. So you could even just kind of park there and look up. Yeah. At one point during our adventuring, we went we tried the Chicory Mountain weather overlook and we tried some like there's no really good place to pull off there. So we tried some side roads and we ended up in what I'm pretty sure is the like the capital of Pennsylvania. Um, There was a, a junkyard with a giant Trump flag. And then later on down the road, there was a guy holding a big stick and staring at us as we drove past the entire time he's just standing there staring and then we turn around because we're like this feels vaguely horror movie-ish so we turn around and we come back and he stares at us the whole way and I'm like is he going to beat us with that stick? Probably. So. Alright so Amber what's your ray of light? Um, I don't know if it's a ray of light but it's kind of a fun story so um, 
Carter went to go visit her dad in Philly. And um, I, this is the first time since Christmas that she's gotten to go out because I keep saying no. Um, but so she went out to visit her dad and sure enough, she missed her stop on the train because that's what teenagers do. And uh, <laughs> I always like torturing my exes. So he had to drive an extra 45 minutes to get her at the next stop, which made me really happy for some reason. <laughs> But everybody's there safe and sound. And um, she even brought back a, a mini mouse figurine that she had left in my parents' driveway for her little sister uh, a year ago that uh, she still recalled. She's only three. So she's remembered this thing for a year. And so wow. Carter, Carter brought it back in her pocket, which I thought was adorable. That's sweet. It is sweet. That is really sweet. Scott, right off light. Ooh, uh, tomorrow before 8 p.m., according to Amazon.com, 3D printer number two arrives on my doorstep. Ooh, you're like starting a 3D printing factory over there. They actually call them farms. <laughs> <laughs> this, is a, this is a neat little 3D printer. My other one, uh, my first 3D printer is what's known as an FDM printer. So the way it works is it lays down a layer of plastic and then builds up which you get pretty good results with, the 3D printer I have is a resin 3D printer, which means you put this goo, this resin goo in a tray that has a clear bottom. On the bottom of this tray is an LCD screen and it shines an ultraviolet light up and it'll like just a couple molecules thick. It'll harden the resin, the UV goo, and then you get like an amazing amount of detail on your 3D prints and it just raises out of this vat of ooze and it's fantastic and I can't wait and tomorrow it will be mine. <laughs> that is very exciting. Indeed. Jamie, do you have a ray of light? Uh, uh, you're kind of putting me on the spot there. So, but uh, <laughs> sorry. I'll, I will say I'm doing something different for once. Uh, I'm doing something that's not work, and I'm talking to uh, two new friends here. So it's a fantastic change of pace for me when you uh, don't leave your house for months. <laughs> Yay, quarantine. Jamie, Yay. be sure to friend me on whatever happened to Facebook. <laughs> me too. Oh, we're so old using Facebook and not TikTok. But yes, I will. Yeah, I, I could never TikTok. Forgive me for not flossing and, and doing like the, what the fuck is it now? The Freon challenge where you just like crack open an air conditioner and drink it? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm old. Okay, so somebody who should have done the Freon challenge and just, you know, maybe saved some other lives if he'd just gotten rid of his own was George Joseph Smith. We are talking about the brides in the bath murders. So... He was born January 11th, 1872 in Bethnal Green, London. His father was an insurance agent. Apparently, he was kind of a bad seed from a young age. Uh, at the age of nine, he had to be sent to a reformatory at Gravesend. And then he did eventually go to jail for theft and swindling. Did you guys know that Gravesend is where Pocahontas died and was buried? No. I do now. You do now, yeah. So he was let out at 16, and at age 24, uh, this guy, he you're going to see 
he apparently could talk a woman into anything. He talks a woman into stealing from her boss. Then he takes the money and he uses it to do something that's actually kind of wholesome. He opens up a like a bakery. <laughs> like, hmm. like, like, OK. Uh, then he ends up in jail for a year when the theft is discovered. Now, this bakery was in what I believe is pronounced Lester. And they have some pubs there. Do you guys want to hear the pubs? Of course we do. All right. We've got the Blue Boar, the Black Horse, the Counting House, the High Cross, Friary Lester, which is like Friar, the like monk type guy with a Y on it, uh, the Marquis Wellington, the Ale Wagon, and the Parcel Yard. Parcel oh. Yard sounds like something like Harry Potter can speak. Yeah, yeah. I personally think I would drink at the Counting House. That would be my haunt. So at one point, uh, Smith did steal a bicycle and was sentenced to six months hard labor. So he just would do stupid, stupid stuff. Um, Then he picks up an alias, kind of an ironic one, Oliver George Love. (sighs) Um, and here he has his first and only legal marriage to one Caroline Beatrice Thornhill. Now, she is a 19-year-old bootmaker, and this is 1898. And uh, the reason I say it's his only legal marriage is because bigamy ain't legal. Um, Loves to get married, that. doesn't like the divorce. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He did marry another woman who's not necessarily mentioned, but I kind of wonder if I might know who she is, uh, while still married to Caroline and I'll bring up who I might think she is in a, in a moment. Now, the bakery goes bankrupt, so he sends Caroline off to work as a maid, and he basically has her stealing from his bosses, establishing a pattern here. Yeah, oh. just a little. Yeah. We'll see him establish patterns all over the place. This man liked a pattern. Uh, she gets busted trying to pawn, it depends on, you know, sources very wildly, but it, it's either silver spoons or jewelry, maybe it was both, and she is sent to jail for a year. So Smith splits at this point, and Caroline is not happy when she gets out, and when she spots him sometime after she's released, she calls the cops, and she testifies against him, and he ends up in jail for two years. From 1901 to 1903. She must have known because when he was released, she got the hell out of England uh, entirely. She was like, I, I, know, I don't even want to be in the same country as this dude. So she goes to Canada. And so he picks up back with his other wife. Then, in another pattern, he steals all of her money and he just flitters off into the wind. Now, he was able to take advantage of something that was happening at the time in England with this social phenomena. You had a, a very high spinster count. They would even they would have articles about it in the in the newspapers because men were moving to the British colonies, so there were actually five hundred thousand more women than men around that time. Um, so lots of lots of unmarried women. We all know if you get to the age of twenty and you're not married, you're a spinster, and there is no hope for you. Might as well just super glue everything shut and hang a for sale sign around your neck. You're done. Yeah. Now, I have a fantastic quote from, um, it was from the Daily Mail article that was on Murderpedia. Um, 
and it was he was a, a smooth-talking spiv with a slim, muscular physique and a penchant for flashy gold rings and brightly colored bow ties. He was a fast-talking <laughs> high-pants boy from Muncie, Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> and a woman who knew him said, quote, when he looked at you, you had the feeling that you were being magnetized. They were little eyes that seemed to rob you of your will. And this was corroborated by another woman who said, quote, the power lay in his eyes, end quote. So in June 1908, he married one Florence Wilson. Uh, she was a widow. He left her a month later, took 30 pounds from her bank account. That's about 4,000 U.S. dollars today. And also sold everything she had in their house. Like, all of her belongings. He's just like, I'm, I'm selling it. Probably all of her clothes, jewelry, anything. Such a gentleman. Really, right? Yeah. <laughs> Chivalry is not dead. Helping get rid of clutter in your household. <laughs> he's just, man. yeah, he's... Lovely man. He's, he's just Marie condoing that shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't need these, uh, these family photos and the, your dead mother's jewelry and... This urn is just filled with nothing but dead ashes in your dad's name. The hell? This is a good $3 at the yard sale. These are just knickknacks. Mm-hmm. So that was... So basically, June, he marries her. He leaves about a month later in July. And then at the end of July, he married Edith Pegler, who basically, he lured her in using a, a want ad for a housekeeper and he told her he was an antique dealer, and he would be absent for months on end, uh, supposedly on business. But that marriage, marriage, um, that relationship seemed to last throughout um, his his adventures here. And yeah, she was one of the only ones that didn't fit the pattern because all in all, they were together for like seven years. Yeah, and he didn't. I think he would ask her for money, but he didn't steal her money. He didn't do anything else horrible to her. He didn't sell all her her belongings. He didn't abandon her randomly, as he did with his fifth marriage the next year in 1909 to Sarah Freeman, uh, under another alias, George Rose Smith, and he stole all of her money and war bonds and made off with a total of 400 pounds, which is $52,000 today. And don't worry, you don't need to be keeping track and doing the math because I'll do it for you later. <laughs> I have <laughs> the total numbers from all the numbers that we had here, and I added them up because I was curious. <laughs> so, um, and at some point... In here, he married Sarah Faulkner, and I think that she is the one. She's it, there's never a date attached to her name, but I think that she's the one he married while he was still married to Caroline. And that's what, what I thought too. That okay, she's good. The second wife. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not alone. What he did to her? Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. He generally his pattern was when he was leaving a wife, he would say he was going to go run an errand and then just run off with their money, but with Sarah. He took her to the National Gallery of Art, and they're just, you know, admiring the paintings and the statues. God, I love a statue. And then he said, oh, you know, I have to run off to the loo. And he ran off to their hotel, where he stole all of her money and clothes, and then disappeared into the, well, it was probably day, disappeared into the day. And at this point, he'd also already managed to get 350 pounds of her money and her jewelry, so $48,000 today. Uh, so yeah, he she's just left there at the gallery thinking they're having a nice outing and he never comes back. 
I want to see the awkward meeting between them, like several years later when they run into each other. It's like, dear, you have to understand, I was in the bathroom, and then the most peculiar thing happened. I heard tiny voices coming from the toilet, and I followed them down and found two little people and a living <laughs> with a hose in the sewers in the most magical kingdom where the beer flowed like warm wheat tea. <laughs> it was incredible. And whenever I finally entered forth just moments later, many years had passed on the surface. <laughs> it's a veritable Rip Van Winkle of, of dwarves and beer. <laughs> if that's not making sense to you, you haven't listened to the tiny, and you should. So, in 1910, he is wandering through Clifton in Bristol when he meets Bessie Mundy. Um, her father had been a bank manager before he died, and he left her 2,500 pounds, a nice, tidy fortune of $350,000 in today's currency. And, of course, he has a fake name, Henry Williams, and a fake job, an art restorer. He always finds something like antique dealer, art restorer, you know, something genteel, something sort of uh, gentlemanly, you know? Mm-hmm. They are married within just a few weeks. Fast, fast, fast. But uh, it seems like there was a break in their marriage because her inheritance was actually guarded by trustees, so he couldn't get his hands on it. He did manage to get uh, 150 pounds from her, $20,000, then basically accused her of giving him venereal disease and split. We don't know that that's not true. We don't, but it is. She denied it, and 18 months later, they they reconcile, and he's just like, well, you know, I left because I had the venereal disease, and I didn't want to give it to you. And she's like, but I thought you... Oh, all is forgiven. It's okay. Lady, you have given me the wiener fever. (laughs) So when they reconcile, they're living in Hearn Bay. That's in southeast England. And he gets her to make a will, leaving everything to him. You don't do that. Don't ever make a will giving your money to anybody you love. Once again, Scott, (laughs) didn't you make a will that leaves everything to Amber? (laughs) My life insurance leaves everything to Amber. The will, there's a sheet of paper with some symbols on it, and the man who bests me in combat We'll know what those symbols mean. Okay, Ron. Yeah, I was thinking, that's the Ron Swanson line. That is. That absolutely is. I was waiting for it. Somebody's going to call me on my bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) So, soon after that, this story goes a couple ways. I picked the one that is definitely the worst for him, um, as far as how he comes out looking. He is shopping for a cast iron bath. Now, the ironmonger says, well, that'll be two pounds. And he's like, nah, no. So he sends Bessie to haggle. And he's, he's like, I want you to get the price down by two shillings. Just two, two shillings. Then he starts gaslighting the fuck out of her by telling her, oh, you have these epileptic fits and then you don't remember them they're just wiped from your memory you know sunshine of the eternal spotless mind what the hell was that movie's name you got it 
No, it's okay. eternal, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Ooh. Okay, I just had a couple words transposed. All right, all right, good. Yeah, very much that is happening, apparently. Um, so she goes to the doctor, Dr. Frank French. Guys, <laughs> guys, I don't even know. <laughs> Why? 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 Because why not? <laughs> I guess so. And she's like, well, here's all these symptoms I have that I don't actually remember experiencing. And the very next day, on July 13th, 1912, Smith sends a note to the doctor that says, come at once, my wife is dead. That's blunt. Mm. Right. And I guess if she's dead, you know, you're not going to have any pleasantries. Like, you know, hello, I hope this day finds you, finds you well and safe. Come at once, my wife is dead. Sincerely, George Smith. So, when the doctor gets there, Bessie is, in fact dead in the bath and Smith says that he found her there. Her face depending on the source is either partly or fully underwater. She's holding a bar of soap tight in her right hand. Her legs are like straight out in front of her but her feet are actually out of the water. These are all details that will be important later. So but- here's, here's the first thing that should tip you off. If she is still underwater in any way shape or form because any loving human would take the person out of the tub and try to at least revive them or like see if they're alive not just leave them underwater yes yes that is very very true it it definitely feels like somebody should have caught on to that but nobody did there was an inquest and it was called a natural death They, they said she just had one of her epileptic fits that were only recorded at the doctor's yesterday and he gets about 2,500 pounds from her will, 330,000 US dollars. And that will was also made five days before she drowned. Why is nobody suspicious? Right? Never make a will. <laughs> At least never tell anybody you're making a will. It's so frustrating. Just like, keep, somebody catch on. Just keep going. Like I'll get around to it eventually. Yeah procrastinate the crap out of that scary thing so he is flush with cash but he still gets her the cheapest possible coffin and has her buried in a common grave instead of her own plot so not only is he an asshole he's a cheap asshole well yeah why, why would he spend money on a person when he could keep it for himself in fact, one thing he didn't keep for himself was the iron bath, which he returned to the ironmonger and got a refund for. I'm done with this. It served its purpose. Yeah. I'm just going to spend the rest of my life smelling. And uh, some of you may have caught that uh, when, when Bessie was going to buy the tub, she was she was shopping for her own, where the place where she was going to be murdered. Yeah, yeah. Hey. Like, that's horrifying. I I can sort of understand getting rid of the tub because nobody wants to be sitting in a haunted bathtub. Yeah. <laughs> True. So then he's off to South Sea, which is in southern England. He meets Alice Burnham there. She is 25 and described as a, quote, a plump and pretty young nurse. End quote. And she is soon to be wife number seven. Two months after they meet, they get married. It's November 1913. And literally on their wedding day, he takes her to get a life insurance policy for 500 pounds, $67,000. 
And her parents are objecting all the way. They're like, do not do this. No, we don't like him. You shouldn't marry him. But it happens anyhow. And a month, about a month later, he's like, you know what we never did? We never went on a honeymoon. Oh, so romantic. So they had to, I'm sorry, the least romantic sounding place. But it, if you look it up, it actually looks pretty nice. Uh, Blackpool. I always hated that name. <laughs> that sounds like the 1970s exploitation film of Deadpool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's actually, we're, we're really traveling here. This is 400 miles north of South Sea. And I have some pubs in Blackpool. These uh, actually knock the other ones out of the water. So, uh, Scruffy Murphy's. Yes! <laughs> there it is. The Albert and the Lion. Eh. Dog and Partridge. Okay. Little Black Pug Bar. I like that. They better have a little black pug there. Damn straight they better. Uh, Lifeboat Inn. Depends Ma on Kelly's. how much it's raining. Yes. Ma Kelly's uh, Walkabout, which, as you know, you might guess is an Australian bar. Shenanigans. We had one of those. We did, in fact. Um... And I, I don't think you guys are actually going to be able to guess what type of bar the next bar is. Man bar. <laughs> Man bar. It is, is a really fabulous looking gay bar. Um, it looks like, and it has great reviews too. So, um, and then uh, I saved what might be the best and might be the worst for last. Peekaboo's. Booze is of course spelled B-O-O-Z-E. That's oh, adorable. Fantastic. Okay, you guys. No, like that's food. terrible. That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie's not a fan of the puns lately. It's like a dad joke in a bar. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it really is. So they get to Blackpool, and he's a little picky about boarding houses. He needs a room with a bathroom. So he says, nah, to the first place they looked at because it didn't have what he needed. And then he does find one to his liking, run by Margaret and Joseph Crossley. There was one source that said Margaret was a widow, but Joseph Crossley is mentioned in several other places and it refers to his wife. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that Joseph was, in fact, alive. Um, Alice, it turns out, is also sickly, if you ask her husband, uh, with constant, constant headaches. And there's a, a really hacky joke in there about a, a wife with headaches. <laughs> Right? I can't find it right now. Well, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's, it's almost, it, it almost just exists in this scenario. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I got to take my new wife to the doctor. She's, she's got headaches every night. Every night. Not, <laughs> not tonight, honey. I got a headache. <laughs> so he takes her to the doctor in Blackpool. Three days later, it's just kind of a, a day, um, Crossley, Margaret Crossley's actually, she's downstairs and she sees some water dripping from the ceiling and then soon after, Smith pops down, chats with her for a few minutes probably mentions that his wife's in the bath, and then he heads back up where he finds her dead. There's an inquest here. Fines. And let's, put, let's put giant quotation marks around the fines. Oh fines yeah, I actually yeah. I do have finds her in quotation marks in my notes, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you there. 
Um, the inquest finds that she fainted while in the bath and drowned, which we're going to find out is actually closer to the truth than you might think. Um, he got the life insurance as well as her 600 pounds in savings, $83,000 in today's money. And then in September 1914, he marries Alice Reed. There's no word on whether she died, so it's likely that he just did what he does. You know, he, he took her money and then ran. You know, he, that, was his, that was his thing. Everybody needs a hobby, you guys. Murder. My hobby is murder. Marrying and murder, and also sometimes marrying and running off with the money. <laughs> and then, in of all places, Bath, England. No. Oh, <laughs> This yeah. guy likes the puns a little too much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in November 1914, he meets Margaret Lofty. She is 38. And they, again, whirlwind courtship here. They get married the very next month. Now, his name is John Lloyd. And his newest career is land agent, which we have mentioned land agents in one or two other episodes. And so finally I was like, I'm looking it up. This is a person who takes care of business matters for an estate, you know, the, the kind that would have tenants and, you know, maybe some, some people farming, supervises the farming, collects rent from the tenants and, and all that kind of stuff. So that is what a land agent is. It's not actually a real estate agent, as I thought, or um, a hill that's spying on you. So. Uh, he also got, uh, has her get life insurance for 700 pounds, $84,000, three days before the wedding, just spread freaking flags everywhere. <laughs> oh, and he takes her to the doctor for her horrible headaches, literally on their wedding night. You know, we got to speed the service up. We got an appointment for her at the doctor. We got to get these headaches taken care of. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, on their second night of marriage, the landlady is ironing, and she's right below the bathroom in the room Smith had rented with his new wife when she hears the following. Splashing. The sound of hands rubbing the bath. Oh, my God, how thin were those floors? <laughs> like, How can you even fucking identify that? Right? A sigh. And then, I guess, in their in their rooms, they had a harmonium, and she hears nearer my god to thee the, the hymn being played on the harmonium soon after that the front door slams and then soon after that someone knocks at the front door she goes to answer it and oh look it's smith he ran out to get some food for his lovely wife and forgot his key or he's going to what i think are darkly comedic lengths to wrangle up an alibi like i'm just right. picturing him doing all these things like running around and it's just it has a cartoonish feel to it if he did it while yakety sax played it'd be even better yes absolutely uh now this wife had written up a will naming him beneficiary three hours before dying i'm gonna say it again don't fucking tell people about your will yeah. yeah the cause of death is ruled as misadventure which is it i think they were all kind of misadventure i think that they might have all fallen under that but we don't get a specific like you know explanation but i do think that misadventure sounds like the funnest way to go i'm thinking orgy 
Well, an orgy can be a misadventure too. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Boy, I've been really there. Quick to confirm that. <laughs> so, once again, Smith gets the life insurance. All told, now, including what we know he stole from wives, all their savings, bonds, etc., we are at in today's money. Do you guys want to take a? Actually, we should do guessing game. Guessing game. Do you guys want to take a guess at how much this is all added up to? Absolutely. Uh, seventeen million in today money. Okay, Amber. Three point two million. Jamie. Oh man, you guys guessed a lot. I was gonna say like six hundred thousand. Six hundred and eighty-three thousand. Ba ba da da. Jamie Price is right at us. Yeah. yeah. One dollar. <laughs> <laughs> so, this death, Margaret's death, ends up being written about in the newspaper. And that is sort of the catalyst for a whole bunch of people to start connecting these dots. On January 15th, 1915, the owner of the Blackpool boarding house sends Detective Inspector Arthur Neal, who is on the case, a letter with clippings about Burnham's death and Margaret Lofty's death. And the owner's wife and Alice's father had both pointed out how similar these deaths were and, and urged him to, to contact the police. So... Neil, Inspector Neil, is investigating. He checks out the tub, and he thinks it's a little weird that she drowned, Margaret drowned, in such a small tub. The only mark on her is a small bruise above her left elbow, but it just doesn't seem really super feasible that she would actually be able to drown in that. Tubs back then were really, um, like, tapered to a point, and they, they weren't very big, so... Uh, and so Neil's like, I need to draw the suspect out. So... He has the coroner actually tell the insurance to go ahead and, you know, approve, you know, the life insurance payout because the death was natural, which I think is a very wonderfully sneaky way of doing this. And they go and they stake out the insurance office. Finally, on February 3rd, a gentleman shows up and Neil comes up to him and says, are you John Lloyd? And the gentleman says, yes. And then Neil's like, well, are you also George Smith? And the gentleman says, no. And Neil's like, well, I think you are, A, and B, I'm going to take you in for questioning, you lying, lying bigamist. And then Smith's like, yeah, okay, that's it. I guess it's me. Shut up, all right? <laughs> so they don't really have enough evidence for the murder yet, so they arrest him of ch a charge of making a false entry on a marriage certificate. Give them a little time to get things going. <clears throat> Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's the tax evasion of marriage. <laughs> yeah. So along comes Bernard Spilsbury. I fucking love Spilsbury. Oh, whenever I saw the name, whenever I was doing this, I was like, yeah, that's my boy. It's like, <laughs> it's like if you can't get Vidoke, you know, you get Spilsbury. Okay. Maybe Superman's not going to come rescue, but there's Batman. This is good. Just a little bit. It's like Superman, but goth. <laughs> <laughs> and he, yeah, if, you, if you've listened to all of our episodes, you'll know Bernard Spilsbury was a noted pathologist of the day. And they have Margaret's body exhumed, and he performs a second autopsy. Now, 
he he determines that it wasn't quite like your usual drowning. She had died pretty suddenly, and you know, a drowning takes a minute or two. Um, but there was no poison found in her system, so that was out. So he and Neil get the bathtub from the boarding house where Margaret died, and they start doing some experiments. Meanwhile, the police chief down in Hearn Bay also sees an article about the brides in the bath, and he's like, hmm, that sounds familiar. That sounds like the Bessie Mundy case. So he sends word to Inspector Neal, and then Neil sends him some pictures of George Smith to confirm, you know, is this the guy? Is this the husband of, the, the, of Bessie? And the Hearn Bay police chief says, yep, that's him. So now they have a third victim on their list. They exhume Alice Burnham, and the autopsy pretty much right in line with Margaret's. Uh, and when Bessie is exhumed, there are similar results, except goosebumps on her thigh are noticed. And that is a sign of drowning. That's a lovely song, too. Goosebumps on my thigh. <laughs> if there were tears in my eyes, you couldn't see. I'm in the bathtub. There's mostly water, but a little pee. <laughs> because George Joseph Smith murdered me. Ah. That went in a direction I did not expect. Thank you. But That's... was entertained by. So... I was curious about this. I was like, why Goosebumps? So I did some looking. It was hard to find because the, the Goosebumps book series exists. Um, so that caused some, some issues in the search results. But I have Amy E. Rattenberry uh, in an article on Forensic Ergonomics. That's the title of the article. Um, quote, caused by rigor mortis in the erector pili muscles of the dermis with the skin adopting a pimpled appearance similar to that of goosebumps and you do see it basically now we know that it's forensic details like the the goosebumps you see them in water-based decomposition it doesn't necessarily mean there was drowning so it wasn't quite the the home run that spillsbury thought it was at the time but you know it's still definitely it, is something so spillsbury and neil they still have some work to do. So they get all the tubs. All the tubs. And Spillsbury is looking at the tub that Bessie died in, and he's like, this is not possible. This, this tub is so small that when she had the seizure, she would have stiffened up, and she wouldn't have been able to get her head underwater in, the, in a tub of this size. And also the soap came into play here because he's like, if that soap was held tightly in her hand, she would have dropped the soap. I mean, think of trying to hold onto a bar of soap in the first place and then add a seizure. <laughs> Don't try this at home. <laughs> I have uh, tremors. And I'm, I'm telling you what, I, even with a tremor, I could send that soap across the room. I, there, was, there would be no holding it in my hand. So, um, Spillsbury, all right, he comes up with a theory. He says, I think that Smith killed the women by either grabbing their feet and yanking them up or, you know, just nice solicitous husband comes up next to his wife in the bath, slides an arm under her knees and then pulls the leg up. And that would have forced their heads underwater, at which point the water would rush up the nose and down the throat, 
put pressure on the vagus nerve, which when you put that pressure on the vagus nerve, nerve it causes it can cause shock and fainting. I like so how he, he uh, how he tested this. Yeah. Oh my yeah. god. motherfucking Christ, also known as the I'm almost a murderer myself method <laughs> yeah. of criminal testing. He gets a woman. Uh, he gets a couple professional divers in. And they just, okay, we'll test it this way. We'll test it this way. He goes, hmm, I have a theory. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to go up to this, uh, this professional diver. And uh, without saying anything, I'm going to grab her fucking feet and pull her out of the water. <laughs> and just, yeah. boom, under she goes. And instantly, she goes under the water and pretty much dies. And it takes a half an hour to resuscitate her. Okay, so modern science actually gives this credibility, though, because uh, apparently the rushing of water down your throat puts pressure on one of the main nerves in your neck mm -hmm. that can make you instantly faint. Half an hour. I know. Well, she fainted. When you faint, you breathe normally, even if it's water, because you're not conscious. So she just breathed water in, not even aware that she was not breathing anymore. It's a yeah, woman. Just... It's barely worth anything. I'm going to punch you. <laughs> no, that's the... I, I agree. That is a okay. dick attitude to have. <laughs> but let's face it, that was the attitude of the time. The fact, the fact that, uh, that Smith is murdering his wives, they're only after him because they didn't think of it. But you know what? Like, I really want to know like, how they advertise for that. I need female divers to uh, let us test drowning on. We would just like to try to drown you in various fashions just to see what happens and how much you struggle. You got to you got to work up to that slowly. You start with an advertisement that's just like female divers wanted. Yeah. And then you give them the address and then they show up for the interview and they're like, "Well, we just want to test out some scenarios in the bathtub." And you work your way to it. And the thing is is that, you know, like Scott said, they this woman that they did this to and it was actually Neil I think performing the experiment at this point she didn't know she had to not know what he was about to do um, so that she wouldn't like struggle because it had to be more of a simulation of what actually happened and so that they could see you know reenacted essentially and so yeah they might not even have told them they might have just been like oh well, we want to see what happens if we you know like grab your arm and the, it, it may have never been explicit. Which one of the job application is? Do you have a will? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's see how which which one of the divers has been out of the work the longest? Susan. <laughs> Susan. Okay. And uh, what family does Susan have? Okay, just children. Okay, fantastic. This is going to be great. Uh, and then, like thirty minutes later, after they revive Susan, it's like give her an extra three dollars and send her home. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, guys, how what jobs were really available to women at the time? So, you know, if you didn't want to be the teacher, you know, the cook. Well, you know? if you didn't want to be that thing, we're talking, you know, the 18, 1890s no. prostitution. 1910. 1910. Still prostitution. Uh, still <laughs> prostitution. It's kind of a timeless thing. <laughs> Isn't it lovely? That's why they call it the oldest profession. Mm hmm. But I, like, I don't know that they'd want to be a hooker in London in this time frame. No, no, no. Is there ever a good time to be a hooker around. in London? Probably no. not. 
So, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you could, you could do laundry, but I guess you could also dive and, and have police inspectors or inspector detectives uh, attempt to kill you. Is doing laundry some sort of weird sex act that I don't know about? No, it's just taking in laundry and doing it for people. Kinky. All right. People didn't like to do their own laundry because it was a pain in the ass. <laughs> it's still a pain in the ass, but it less so. So they arrest George Smith. And he is charged with all three murders, but they only try him for Bessie Mundy's. However, the prosecution is allowed to bring in evidence from the other murders in order to establish a pattern. And this will actually set a precedent that will be used in, in later cases when criminals have like a system or a pattern, something you know, that they do over and over. So this is you know, the beginning of that in England. He declined to testify in his own defense. On June 22nd, the trial started. Caroline Thornhill, if you remember her, she was the first of his wives and the only legal one, comes to the proceedings. I like her. <laughs> um, at one point, Smith has an outburst in court and he yells that he had not committed murder and he could not be sentenced to death. Well, we'll see about that. Uh, Detective Neal brings in one of the tubs as well as a nurse in a bathing costume and of course you have a nurse in a bathing costume so this cannot be in the public courtroom so they have to take it to like a little side room and they do a, like an actual like reenactment of how they think Smith did it and also a reenactment of what they did to that poor lady diver <laughs> <laughs> watch what happens watch it get more women <laughs> yeah right and the nurse, they do the demonstration, and the nurse needs CPR afterwards. So, and she probably didn't freaking know either. She's there just like, here, put on this bathing suit. We're going to have you be in a tub in a courtroom. And she was like, okay. I don't know what to do. I'm just a girl. <laughs> <laughs> so the jury goes to deliberate on July 1st. And uh, Jamie, do you want to take a guess at how long it takes for them to come back? Seven minutes. A uh, little down, but it's pretty close. 22. 22 minutes, they come back. No, you know, I think I think Jamie is actually 100% correct. Within Probably. seven minutes, they had their verdict, and then they took 15 minutes to smoke a cigar. I refuse okay, to think it took that long. I just, I just picture them going like, did you notice that the nurse died? Yeah, fucker's guilty. Done. On a technical note, because we have talked about this so many times before, do note that I said how long it took them to come back, not how long it took them to reach a verdict. Because <laughs> we all know that the two are not the same thing. This is true. You gotta so have most of that time was just walking down the hall to come back. So, <laughs> Yeah. Smoking cigars, you know, chatting with your buddies. Take your time, everyone. <laughs> yeah. So they find him guilty. No. Yes. <laughs> he is sentenced to hang... There was an appeal. He seemed pretty certain that it was going to make it, but it did not. Uh, it was dismissed. And on August 13th, 1915, at the age of 43, the man who married 10 women and killed three was hanged. That is not the way you murder this guy. That's not how you execute him at all. What you put do, him in a bathtub? you put him in a bathtub with a rope around his feet and let him <laughs> sit there for a couple of hours. And just like yanking a tooth out, you tie the end of the rope to a doorknob and just somebody, boom, shuts it. Done. 
So one of my favorite quotes that he actually said was, I am no murderer, although I may be a bit peculiar. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> I didn't find that, Amber. Good find. Anytime that I do something wrong and I get caught, I'm just going to I'm going to completely deny it. But I'm going to use that line. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> peculiar. Just peculiar. Uh, when he was taken to the gallows, he was he was shaky. And when the noose was put around his neck, he yelled, I'm innocent. That didn't have any effect, and he was hanged. Now, also learned a new word. This was, uh, what he did was serial auxoricide, which is killing of the wife. So he was a serial auxoricide. If it's a husband, it's meriticide. Uh, so there, there you go. There's your vocabulary lesson. Your murder <laughs> vocabulary lesson. I've already, for I've already <laughs> forgot what the word is. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> okay. Oxoricide. Repeat after me, Scott. Oxoricide. Tits. <laughs> nope, it's gone. So, the very next day, Caroline Thornhill, finally free of her husband, remarried to a Canadian soldier. I told you I like her. There are some theories that he was a uh, real-life Svengali, and he hypnotized these women into marrying him, and maybe even hypnotized them into dying, like drowning themselves. But it's said that you really can't hip hypnotize somebody into hurting themselves. I, even I think the best—a a lot of people have this idea of hypnotism is like, oh, I'm going to like swing this watch in front of you, and then you're going to do whatever I say. Uh, I actually talked to a psychologist about hypnotism. I've been hypnotized a few times myself, quite to a successful degree. Um, and the best, the best way I've heard it put is, if I wanted to have an advantage over you, I wouldn't hypnotize you. I'd hypnotize myself. Hmm. That is Wait, why would you hypnotize yourself? How would you hypnotize? Can you hypnotize oh, you, yourself? Oh, you absolutely can. You absolutely can go through a process called self-hypnosis. And essentially, if you want to have an advantage over somebody, then guess what? You're going to want to have a clear head, and that's what hypnosis does for you. It's going to, it's going to clear out all the clutter of your life. It's going to clear out all the stress. You're going to be more focused. You hypnotize yourself. And honestly, the psychologist that I talked to, was he was absolutely fascinating with this whole thing. It was the first time I got hypnotized back in 1996. And he, he explained it beautifully. You're, it's, it's like being your brain being awake, but your body being asleep. And he like, what he did was he sat me down in a very comfortable chair. He had me count down from 100 a couple of times, just in my head. Whenever you reach, you know, whenever you reach zero, lift up your finger. And it was, it was extremely, extremely effective. Um, what I was doing, I was having trouble keeping up with, uh, with my college courses. I was uh, studying music. And so I went, you know what? You've got to be of the attitude that you're going to take whatever, you're going to do whatever it takes. So I went to this hypnotist. I plunked down the money. We talked for a little bit. And... Uh, by the end of my time at the college, I had gotten the most improved percussionist award, which hangs on my wall to this very fucking day. Wow. But yeah, it was, it was an absolutely amazing thing. And I felt like whenever I was under, I felt like, yeah, I can do this. And whenever I came out, 
and it wasn't a thing where it's like I came out of it and like, oh, what happened? Where am I? Who are you? Where is why is my penis out? It was nothing like that. <laughs> I was completely aware the entire time. In fact, I would say I was hyper aware. Like I could I could feel like every crease in the leather that I was sitting on. I could I could feel the texture of the uh, of the leather underneath the arms. I could feel the air pushing against my face. So if anything, I was hyper aware. And whenever I, I kind of understood afterwards what he meant, if I want to have an advantage over you, I'm not going to hypnotize you. I hypnotize myself. Yeah, see, I don't need that. I run on spite. Yeah, and, <laughs> that um, works. It's, it's the same thing, really. <laughs> well, even Smith's attorney subscribed to the hypnotist theory. He said, quote, I had a long interview with Smith. I was convinced he was a hypnotist. Once I accepted this theory, the whole thing was explained. I, I mean, there's little psychological tricks you can do to manipulate people. Oh, and I'm sure he was doing a lot of those. Yeah, he's yeah. A, he was a master gaslighter. And, and honestly, like, just knowing this guy's a murderer or could be a murderer, that is, like, one of the things that, that really really tends to draw people to other people so i could see like that sense of danger it's the the chemicals that are released in the brain for a sense of danger the way your body reacts to a sense of danger is very similar to the chemicals that pump out of your your mood sack in your head uh whenever you fall in love so i could i could see that yeah yeah maybe those when those red flags came up they just got the the, the the mood sack falling in love hormones mixed up with the red flag hormones. Yeah. Well, the, these were younger girls. The, most of these women were between what, like nineteen and twenty-four. One was thirty-eight, but I didn't necessarily get ages on all of them. Like the couple that I did see their ages, they were they were younger and young and dumb. It's a thing. Yeah. It's. I mean, they say your brain's not finished developing until you're twenty-five. So. I'm still working on it. <laughs> Same. So, yeah, did I miss anything with George Joseph Smith? you guys have anything else? Um, no, I think that's all of it. Like, the thing that really fascinates me about this guy is that how did he fucking know? That's a weird way to murder somebody in a tub, but he seemed to have it, like, from day one. Yeah, you're right about that. Again, right? It's, kind of, it, it's, a, it's a method of doing this that worked, and it, it's not like he, he apparently had to experiment his way to find it because we don't have any, like, failed murders or assault charges or anything well, that we're aware of. What if the first one was an accident? What if they were just in an argument and he just, like, grabbed her feet and yanked her and then was like, oh, shit. I, okay. I, I, don't, I don't think so. This, this goes back to, and, and Christy and I kind of, kind of butt heads on this. Which is weird because I think Christy has found that I'm more of a skeptic than anyone has ever realized. <laughs> I'm known as the guy, I like ghosts and UFOs, and I think, I think that Bigfoot and the Jersey Devil fuck on a regular basis. No, it's, I, I'm actually much more of a skeptic than that. And, but certain, there seems to be like a touch of like sinister paranormal with it, with like cases like this how in the world that is a very weird way like i picture so drowning someone in the tub i picture it as a messy affair you're in the tub with them holding them under uh, like the last thing i would think would be grab the feet and go like and 
there's so many little things like the one that really gets me that little touch of the paranormal in there that nobody really thinks about the bloody benders where they were hiding bodies in the well that they drank from how did they not die yeah i yeah. mean I, okay so here's my thinking I don't think that he accidentally discovered this because he was definitely preparing for this murder by, you know, like taking her to, you know, the doctor for the, the supposed seizures and everything. And he, he was definitely setting this up so that it would just be assumed that she had a seizure in the bath. So I wonder if he just happened to get it right on the first try. If he thought a lot about it and was like, well, if I like hold her head down, it'll look like, you know, there, there definitely will be signs of a struggle. So maybe I can still drown her. I just need to find some other way to control her body. What are some other ways? I can just yank her feet up. And if I hold onto her feet in, and she's in deep enough water, her head's not coming up. So he might, I'm sure he probably wasn't thinking of like, you know, the, the, the bagel nerve and all that stuff. But he definitely like once he holds her feet he has control she's gonna have a hard time you know even if she if, if that immediate shock didn't happen she's gonna have a hard time climbing her way back up and getting her head above water if, if it would be impossible he just got lucky that it actually happened instantaneously so i i think that you know really he was he was planning and it just worked even better than he anticipated wow humans are fragile i can use this to my advantage Yes, pretty much. So, yeah, that is George Joseph Smith. And uh, if you want to, if you have any theories on how he came up with this, or if you agree with one of us or not, um, come and tell us on our social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget our Patreon, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, where we have some offerings there. If you listened to The Tiny this week and enjoyed that, there are plenty more where that came from that you haven't heard. Even if you listened to all the ones that we released over, you know, the, 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 the deep quarantine is what we're calling it. I think now we're in, like, light quarantine for the moment. I quarantine call, light. I call this the mistake quarantine. Yeah, it's starting to look that way. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, if you enjoy those, we have a ton more that you haven't heard, and we're putting out more every week over on the Patreon. And then we also have some other potential bonuses at the different tiers that you can look at. So, um, yeah, and if, if you just want to leave us, a, a, you know, just a buck on the nightstand, you can do that via our email, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com on PayPal. And we'll give you a little shout-out on the show. You know, we'll say your name. Um, if you you know have a little message you want us to say, so, you know, give us some, give us your filthy words. Scott will say them. <laughs> yeah, I will. I might. <laughs> so yeah, that is all the ways that you can support us: rate, review, subscribe, all that jazz. You know it. Tell a friend about us. Uh, if you feel like it, go check out my other podcast, Detectives by the Decade. It's been a, a fun little ride there, and. That is all my stuff. So, uh, what are we doing this weekend, guys? Nothing. I am going to. Uh, well, my my girlfriend finally got her computer, so we are going to have a nice little movie night. Uh, we've got a whole list of movies that we want to catch up on. We're going to put them into a random generator and pick one. Nice. And uh, and yeah, we're going to have a nice movie night. I'm gonna I'm gonna sit down with Ariana. And even though we're thousands of miles away, we're going to have a nice little date. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. 
That's lovely. Jamie, what are you up to this weekend? Uh, doing some pretty intensive gardening. We're currently waging war with a, uh, an excessive amount of voles. So uh, I'm in the process of capturing them, and then I put them in a bucket, and then we go wander around the neighborhood and find new homes for them. <laughs> I was hoping for vol juice. <laughs> because I'm much too much of a sissy to actually kill them, I just take them kind of far distances and hope they get lost. There, that's, that's not a bad thing. Uh, there's, you don't think of life as disposable. That's, that's kind of uh, endearing, quite honestly. So don't call yourself a sissy. The the weaker <laughs> bastards are the ones that kill shit because they're too they're too lazy to find another solution. You you're doing something great. Good good on I you. I honestly have nothing better to do than drive around and find a new home for a bucket of voles. <laughs> <laughs> That's a t-shirt. <laughs> that is a t-shirt. Yes. There's some beautiful art that could be on that too. I love it. <laughs> Uh, I am this week to bring us full circle. Uh, I uh, Saturday looks like it's going to be clear, so I'm going to go out comet hunting again. Want to see it? It's it's been getting higher and brighter, so I want to have another shot. Because when we went the second night up to the Galleria, it was too hazy. There were just clouds on that horizon for crying out loud. So yeah, I want to want to see it a little a little better. So I guess I'm probably going out to Becky's grave. Christy, Ooh. I'll tell you what. What we'll do. Uh, we'll have a socially socially distant hangout. Uh, and Amber, if, I mean, if you wanna if you wanna come oh, along. Oh, am I invited too? Thanks. <laughs> I mean, if you don't want to, <laughs> or you can just go fuck yourself. Either way's fine. <laughs> but if you wanna if you wanna find out where Becky's grave is, I'll I'll take you up there. Well, you can just follow me in my car. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. No. Let me know, because I want to see humans this weekend, actually, because um, Carter is going to be home next week, and I have put us all on a 14-day quarantine after she uh. gets back, because um, Philadelphia has uh, quite a few more cases than we do, so just yeah. in case. Very responsible, very responsible. Yeah, um, we'll probably be... We first saw it around 10 p.m., so we'll probably be heading out around, like, 9.30 or so, um, maybe a smidge earlier, just in case it's... we. Uh, it, it's not quite, you know, in the eye line of Becky's grave, but, but yeah, that sounds great. I'd love it. Fantastic. This works. All right, and you know so what else is going on? Uh, I believe there is a, uh, meteor shower going on right now too. Is there? Oh. Um, the meteor shower, the one I know of is on the 28th. Let's see here. Meteor shower 2020 July. Uh, not the Perseids. Come on. Come on. Let's figure this out. Uh, the Southern Delta Aquarids, July 21st. But it's going to be the 18th by then, so we should be getting into that cloud by the 18th. There's a really good chance we'll see some uh, shooting stars. It's just the, uh, like the I highlight. Think it's only visible in the um, Southern Tropics. Or it says it's best seen from the Southern Tropics. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to see where this one is. Uh, the Alpha Capricornids are currently going on, but it doesn't say where it's visible, but you can see a couple. And yeah, Perseids, of course, are, which we found a good Perseid spot when we were out hunting for a place to look at the comets. We finally found, it's taken us years, we finally found what I think will be a good Perseid spot, or we might get murdered there. <laughs> so, so well, all right. Thank you for listening to Old Timey Astronomy. 
Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our filthy astronomical words. And we will see you next week. Bye. 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 My sources this week are Wikipedia, Murderpedia, uh, Eric W. Nye's Currency Converter came in very handy, Amy E. Rattenberry on ScienceDirect.com, History by the Yard, UK, Watford Observer, and Megan Good on Executed Today. My sources for this week are Wikipedia.org, ExecutedToday.com, TheGenealogist.co.uk, and Murderpedia. I also have Murderpedia, Wikipedia, ExecutedToday.com. I also have Daily Mail by David Leaf and Kent Live News by Adam John.